Well, I want to begin with a question, um, which is, how easy do you find it to ask for things? It might be for help, it might be for something you feel you need, it might be for something you want, but how easy is it to actually ask someone for it? See, traditionally, if you're British, or more specifically, if you're English, you apparently find it difficult to ask for things. Asking for something can be seen as a sign of weakness. It might be seen as taking liberties with the person that you're asking. But traditionally, at least, many people in this country sort of seem to prefer to suffer in silence than to ask for things. One illustration of that is in the English love of queuing, of standing in line, quietly waiting for something, rather than asserting their rights and demanding service. Another illustration that I was thinking of this week um, came in an episode of the 70s comedy Faulty Towers. I don't know if you can see that there, but in this particular episode, Basil Faulty, the manager of the Faulty Towers Hotel, is treating everyone terribly, sort of as usual. Um, the soup is cold, the food orders are all wrong, and Basil himself is being very rude to all the guests. But when he asks his English guests how their meals are, they all reply, oh, lovely. Lovely. Thank you, Mr. Faulty, for having a lovely time. And insist on that. And it takes a loud American guest at the hotel to complain to Basil about the service. And only then do the rest of the guests join in and ask for better service. And apparently John Cleese wrote that episode because he just observed that his fellow English people didn't like to complain, didn't like to ask for things. And because of their reluctance to do that, then hotel owners like Basil Fawlty would just have a field day with them. Another example of people condemning you for asking for things... Um, comes in the Charles Dickens novel, Oliver Twist. If you've not read it, don't worry, I've only seen the musical on TV. But, um, but the most famous scene in the book, really, comes at the beginning of the book, when the young orphan Oliver is in a workhouse. And he's been dished out the food for the day, a very tiny amount of gruel, but he's still hungry. And he's naive enough and hungry enough to ask for more. And this launched into a big song with Harry Seacombe, you more. Absolute horror as to what Oliver has asked for. Oliver's request is met with shock and indignation. He is quickly told, you do not ask for more. People do not ask for those things. And Oliver is punished as a result. So the attitude of Basil Fawlty's guests and of the workhouse in Oliver Twist is an attitude that continues for many people right up to today. Don't be too forward. Don't be too demanding. Don't bring attention to yourself and don't ask for things. And there are good reasons for that attitude. Often, people who claim to be assertive can quickly become obnoxious and difficult. Part of growing up and maturing is realising we're not going to get everything that we might want. Part of life in this world is learning to cope with that fact. But as John Cleese and Charles Dickens both observed in their different ways, we can take that attitude too far. By refusing to ask for things, we simply don't get. And we can be exploited by people. As a result. Now in Ruth chapter 3, we meet two women who are compelled to be far more assertive than either their culture or their own personalities inclined them to be. See, Ruth chapter 3 is where Naomi and Ruth spring into action and ask for help. They ask for the help they need to get out of the dire situation they find themselves in as two lonely widows in Israel 3,000 years ago. And in asking for help, they may appear at first too forward to many in Israel of their day. But I want us to see the God of Israel rewards them for asking for help, as we're going to see in the rest 
of this story. You see, the God of Israel and the same God in whom Christians trust today is a God who invites us to ask him for things. God's son Jesus made that clear while he was on earth. Here are some famous words from Matthew 7. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks the door will be opened. And he goes on to illustrate that by saying that even evil parents, even sinful parents, give their children good things. How much more will a loving heavenly father give good gifts to his children? See, he's telling us, ask God for what you need. Seek for him. Knock and God will open the door. And Jesus is saying that we're foolish if we don't ask for things from God. If we don't ask for help from this God. Now that raises a few questions straight away. Does that mean we can ask for anything and God will give it to us? Does it mean if we trust in God we will get everything we ever wanted? Well those are important questions. We're going to come to them again at the end this morning. But for now, we need to see that Jesus tells his followers that it is right for them to go to God and to ask for help. Because God has revealed himself to be good and loving as their father. So what has all that got to do with Ruth chapter 3? Well, again, we've come this morning to the turning point in this book. This is the point where Naomi calls on Ruth to act on all she knows of Boaz so far. In verses 1 to 4 of Ruth 3, Naomi calls on Ruth to respond to Boaz's kindness and generosity in chapter 2, to go to him and to ask him for help. And we're going to see this morning that Ruth cannot afford to pass up that opportunity. She cannot afford to be too reserved or backward here. Instead, she is called to a courageous, risk-taking step of faith in going to Boaz and asking him basically to marry her. And in that step of faith, I want us to see that Ruth has much to teach us about what biblical faith looks like and about how we can benefit from all that Christ has done for us in our lives. Now throughout this series in Ruth, we've seen that the story of Ruth and Boaz is a picture of God's dealings with his people. First with Israel in the Old Testament and now today with Christians, with God's people who are called by Jesus. And in chapter 1 of Ruth, Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi and return to Bethlehem with her was the first step in Ruth coming to know Naomi's God. That was a bold and courageous decision, but one that God began to reward in chapter 2 as Ruth met Boaz. Boaz was a wealthy farmer, a relation of Naomi's, and a man who demonstrated great generosity and care towards Ruth as she worked in his field. See, Boaz showed Ruth kindness that went far beyond what the law demanded. And in so doing, he demonstrated God's blessing on Ruth for the decision that she had made. And we also saw last week that Boaz's kindness towards Ruth was a picture of God's love for his people. It's a lavish love, an undeserved love, a love that goes far beyond the law and that graciously welcomes people into God's family. So Boaz the farmer in chapter 2 is a picture of God's grace and love. But in chapter 3, Boaz takes on a different role. The role of potential husband for Ruth and rescuer for Naomi. And in this too, he is a picture of the loving God. More than that, in chapter 3, I want us to see that Boaz 
becomes more and more a picture for us of Jesus Christ and his love for his people. While Ruth is a picture of someone coming to trust in Christ. Now let me just say before we begin really that when we're dealing with a story like Ruth, we do need to be careful. Not every aspect of Ruth's encounter with Boaz is going to apply to a believer coming to faith in God. We need to be very clear about that. But I hope we're going to see that God has included this story in his word for a reason. That like the rest of the Old Testament, this is here for Christians to understand more about the life-giving God that we trust in. See, when we turn to chapter 4 next week, we're going to see how the story of Ruth has an amazing place in the whole salvation history of God's plans to bring Jesus into the world. But this week, looking at chapter 3, I want us to focus on how Ruth's encounter with Boaz can help us understand important things about the saviour Christians trust in and about what the right response to him looks like. So turn to this chapter then. There's a lot of things here to learn about Ruth and about Boaz, but the chapter begins with Naomi. And Naomi has been pretty quiet since chapter 1. There she bitterly complained that God's hand was against her. But in chapter 2, she began to change her mind in the light of Boaz's kindness towards Ruth. And here in verses 1 to 4, Naomi springs into action on behalf of her daughter-in-law. I'll just read verse 1 for us. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Now the harvest in Bethlehem is coming to an end. It probably lasted about seven weeks. And in that time, Ruth would have had plenty of opportunities to be near Boaz. She was working in his field. And perhaps they would have had opportunities to talk together the way they did the first day they met. That's recorded in chapter 2. But now, the harvest is coming to an end. And the gathered wheat and barley is being taken to the threshing floors. And Naomi knew what this meant. This meant that there would soon be no more opportunities for Ruth and Boaz to meet and to talk. So Naomi chooses to act on this. See, for Naomi here, this is an opportunity not to be missed in verses 1 to 6. And that's because Naomi knew, as did Ruth, that without Boaz and his generosity towards them, they were helpless. Up to this point, Boaz has been a generous employer to Ruth. But now, with the harvest over, they're on their own again. So now Naomi hopes that as well as being a generous farmer, Boaz may actually want to become a loving husband to her daughter-in-law. So to achieve that goal in verses 2 to 4, Naomi urges Ruth to wash herself, perfume herself, put on her best clothes, and go to Boaz on the threshing floor that night. See, time is of the essence. Naomi knows she needs to act quickly if this is going to happen. And Naomi comes across as a bit of a sort of a sort of cunning matchmaker here. And certainly her methods are very unorthodox. And when you look at them, they're also extremely risky. Verses 3 to 4. Wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Not the most common advice that a mother-in-law gives her daughter-in-law. But let's be clear here. If Ruth is found by anyone other than Boaz at the threshing floor, she is in terrible danger 
She could have been mistaken for a prostitute visiting on the harvest night. At the very least, her reputation in Bethlehem would be ruined and someone could try and take advantage of her. And also there's no guarantee as to how Boaz is going to respond to Ruth's actions. He might reject Ruth out of hand. He might have been angry at her presumptiveness in asking him to marry her. I mean, normally, that was a man's job. And Boaz himself might even have taken advantage of Ruth. With no one else around, he might have shown himself to be a very different man to his public appearance. See, Naomi's plan for Ruth involved placing her in a potentially dangerous situation. And Ruth knew this. But look down at verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. See, Ruth is willing to take this risk for Naomi's sake. Ruth demonstrates again her ongoing devotion to her mother-in-law and also her tremendous courage. Because in spite of the risk of scandal, in spite of what others might think of her, in spite of the fear of rejection or worse, Ruth did as her mother-in-law requested. Let's read verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. This is remarkable faithfulness to Naomi and remarkable courage on the part of Ruth. And the original readers would have been just as amazed by this because they know that this woman is not an Israelite like them but a woman from Moab, their hated neighbouring country. And yet she shows this faith and this courage. And when Ruth finally gets to the threshing floor, in verse 7, the writer sort of takes his time describing this one night. He knows just how important it is in the whole story. And so he ratchets up the suspense a bit as he tells it. Verse 7, When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. So at last, Boaz appears, and Ruth is ready for him. He goes to lie down at the far end of the grain pile, far from prying eyes, and he falls asleep. Ruth approaches quietly, uncovers his feet, and lies down herself. So all seems to be going according to plan. Except, in verse 7, Boaz goes on sleeping. Verse 7 tells us he's been eating well, he's been drinking well, he's in good spirits as he faces the end of the harvest, and so he goes out like a light and doesn't wake up when Ruth lies at his feet. And verse 8 begins, after some time has passed, perhaps several hours, it's now the middle of the night. And you can imagine some of the thoughts that are going through Ruth's mind lying at Boaz's feet for all this time. I mean, Naomi didn't warn me about this. What happens if he just sleeps through the night? I'll have to leave before the other workers come up. If he doesn't wake up soon, I might never get the chance to talk to him again. There seems to be a real danger here that Boaz is going to sleep through the night and that Ruth's going to miss out on this opportunity. But then in verse 8, something happens. Verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. Something startled the man. Again, this is another of those phrases in the book of Ruth that just says, God is at work here. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, As it turned out, Ruth is working in Boaz's field. I want to suggest that something that woke Boaz up was God making sure Ruth does not miss this opportunity, making sure Boaz's full stomach and full stomach with wine as well doesn't ensure that he sleeps all the way through this night. 
that Ruth has a chance to speak to him. So the startled Boaz turns, and as another translation puts it, which I really like, behold, a woman lay at his feet. Clearly not something that happened before to Boaz. Boaz is now wide awake. He can't see in the dark yet who it is at his feet, but now Ruth has the opportunity to make her request. Verse 9. Who are you? Boaz asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. See, finally, Ruth gets to make her request of Boaz. And notice how she goes beyond what Naomi tells her to do at the beginning of the chapter. See, Naomi is concerned to find a home for Ruth. She wants Boaz to marry Ruth, to take care of her. But Ruth is also concerned for Naomi. And so she addresses Boaz not only as a potential husband for herself, but as Naomi's relative and kinsman redeemer. See, a kinsman redeemer in Israel was a relative who could take care of both individuals and property on behalf of someone who had died. And Ruth knew that Naomi needed to be cared for as well as herself. See, Ruth's request is courageous enough if she's just asking Boaz to marry her. But she also asks Boaz to take care of her mother-in-law. See, Ruth is demonstrating her commitment to Naomi here again. And no wonder, in verse 11, Boaz praises her for her noble character. Even her growing love for Boaz and her desire to be Boaz's wife cannot lead Ruth to forget or neglect Naomi. See, this is covenant faithfulness shown by Ruth. But we also learn a lot about Boaz in these verses. First of all, in verses 10 to 11, we find out once and for all that Boaz loves Ruth. We see his joy when she speaks to him. Verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. See, up to now, Boaz has kept his feelings hidden. He's been, if you like, a perfect gentleman with Ruth. But his response to Ruth's request shows how much he does love her. See, Boaz is quite a bit older than Ruth, and that seems to have stopped him making any advances towards her. But now Ruth has come to him and asked for his love and protection. And Boaz is overjoyed here. See, Boaz loves Ruth. And his response shows that. But we also see here the faithfulness of Boaz. See, by verse 12, everything's going swimmingly. Ruth wants to become Boaz's wife. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. We're heading towards a happy ending. But then in verse 12, a spanner is thrown in the works. Because the writer reveals there's another kinsman redeemer, closer to Naomi than Boaz is, who might want to marry Ruth himself. This large obstacle comes up between Ruth and Boaz and happiness. And see, Boaz risks losing Ruth in his faithfulness to God's law. See, it must have been tempting for him just to marry Ruth anyway, on the sly, quickly, and forget about this other man. I mean, clearly he hadn't put himself forward to, to marry Ruth, to look after Naomi anyway, so Boaz would think, well, this is my opportunity. But Boaz, we see here again, is a faithful man, and he's determined to do the right thing by Naomi, by Ruth, and even by this other kinsman redeemer. And we'll see next week in chapter 4 how Boaz goes about trying to overcome this obstacle. But Boaz also shows his faithfulness to God 
in his integrity and purity during this whole event. See, we need to realize here, men and women had the same sexual urges 3,000 years ago that they have today. I mean, just look at someone like Samson in the book of Judges, written about the same time as the book of Ruth. Someone who really, his big weakness was, was women, was prostitutes. He indulged that. And it must have been tempting for both Ruth and for Boaz to exploit the privacy of their meeting to consummate the marriage they both hoped would happen anyway, to sleep together on a night when no one else was around. But the writer wants to see they didn't do that. They remained pure that night. They demonstrated their integrity and their trust in the God of Israel. And even the original readership of Ruth would have been deeply impressed by that. So we see Boaz's joy, his faithfulness, and finally we see his care of Ruth. See, Ruth has spent the night sleeping on the threshing floor. Boaz knew it would have been too dangerous for her to go home on her own in the middle of the night. But Boaz doesn't just care for Ruth's safety, he cares for her reputation. So he makes sure she leaves before anyone else sees her. And he also makes sure she doesn't leave empty-handed. Boaz, it seems, just cannot stop himself giving great gifts to Ruth. He gives her plenty of grain in verse 15. So as Ruth returns home to Naomi, she returns home again from this generous, faithful, joyful man who says he will do whatever he can to marry Ruth and to take care of Naomi. You see, Ruth's courage in going to the threshing floor seems to have paid off by the end of chapter 3. So what has all this got to say to us today? How does the story apply to the relationship between a believer and Jesus Christ? See, again, we need to be careful here. Not every detail of the story will apply to a believer's relationship with Jesus. But I want us to see, very briefly, that a lot of it does. See, throughout the Bible, the the biblical writers use a number of pictures to illustrate God's relationship with his people. A common example of that is God is portrayed as a father and we are portrayed as his children. But another common one is the Bible says that God is like a husband and his people are like God's wife. The love between a man and a woman is frequently used to describe the love between God and his people. And the biggest New Testament example of that is in Ephesians 5, where husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, Christ's love for his church is the standard for Christians' husbands. Because according to Paul, Christ is the perfect and passionate loving husband. So any time the Bible describes a loving husband, it describes a man marked by faithfulness and integrity in his love for a woman, we can see something of Christ's love for his people. So we can see Christ in Boaz's love for Ruth. And we can see the church, we can see individual believers in Ruth's decision to go to Boaz in chapter 3. So what do we learn about Christ in the church here? Well, very quickly again, with the believer in Christ, there is an opportunity not to be missed. Ruth and Naomi know they need Boaz to rescue them. They know Boaz is their only hope of a secure and happy future. In chapter 2, Boaz shows himself to be generous, to be gracious. He gives Ruth so much, but now Ruth has to respond to all she knows about Boaz and go to him and ask him to help her. Ruth knew 
she needed Boaz. She knew that Boaz was generous, but she still needed to take that step of going to him and asking him to help. And see, it's the same for us when we learn something of who Jesus is. Once we realise just how gracious and loving and forgiving Jesus is, then we need to act on that knowledge. It's not enough just to know those things. We need to go to Christ and put our trust in him. Because if we don't do that, our situation is far worse than Naomi's or Ruth's. Our situation is that we are lost. See, the Bible's clear. Life is short. As Hebrews 4 verse 7 puts it, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We need to recognize that without Christ, we are spiritually dead and we are headed for an eternity without God. See, Ruth is a reminder to us here. If we know anything of Jesus' goodness and grace, then it's our responsibility to go to him, to put our trust in him, not to waste another minute. So it's an opportunity not to be missed with Christ. But as with Ruth's journey to the threshing floor, any decision to put our trust in Christ is also the step that requires courage on our part. See, Ruth risked scandal and her own safety to go to Boaz. Her reputation could have been ruined if she'd been found out. But it's perhaps a great irony that today, in our society, a woman visiting a man in the middle of the night isn't that scandalous anymore. But it's far more scandalous in our society for a man or a woman to say, I follow Jesus and I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. The scandal has switched from one area to another. To the outside world, to many maybe of of our friends and family members, it looks like madness to follow Jesus. So to take that step requires courage on our part. Some people will think we're throwing our lives away. They'll have pity on us. Other people just get angry about that. They they view Christians with, with suspicion and contempt. It's a scandalous thing to say that I follow Jesus. Our church currently has the word evangelical in its name. And we may well be trying to change that in the near future to avoid misunderstandings of people who have just negative connotations with that word evangelical. And I fully support a name change if the church comes to that. But I also believe there's actually something useful for us as a church to bear a name that is treated with suspicion by the outside world. Because see, that's part of the Christian life. If we say, I follow Jesus, then... People are suspicious sometimes. They just don't quite know what to make of us. And some people are out and out hostile to that. Even on Friday, I was giving out some posters and flyers to some local primary schools for um, our holiday Bible club happening in the summer. And at one of the schools I visited, I just really got such a frosty reception. As I said, I was from a church wanting to advertise a Christian club for children. And I walked away from that school feeling pretty rubbish if I'm honest, feeling really, yeah, just, I felt I made to feel really uncomfortable when I was there. And that's only a very minor example of some of the opposition we might face for following Jesus. At work, at home, in our families. 
See, choosing to follow Jesus is a step that requires courage. But Ruth finds out that God rewards courage. And he rewards it in us as well. Having thought about that, about how that's a picture of us coming to faith in Jesus, we need to see that Boaz is also a picture to encourage us of the response we can expect when we do put our faith in Jesus. Very briefly then, it's the joy of Christ has got to be seen. See, Jesus' joy at people coming to him comes not from a sense of surprise, as Boaz's does. It comes from a passionate desire that lost people be found and brought into a relationship with God through him. See, Jesus' joy at people coming to faith is an extravagant and wonderful joy. He taught his disciples in Luke 15 that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, there was a huge celebration in heaven the day you came to faith. Jesus rejoices that you now belong to him. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then there is a huge celebration waiting to happen if you will just put your trust in him and come to Jesus. So there is the joy that Jesus receives us with. There's also the faithfulness of Christ. Again, Boaz, there's an obstacle between him and Ruth coming to know each other. It's the same with Jesus. The obstacle is our sin. It's our death. It's the fact that we will all die without God, without his forgiveness. But that is why Jesus came, to deal with that obstacle. He entered our world, defeated sin at the cross, defeated death at the resurrection, and he has overcome any obstacle between us and the living God. He is faithful. And then finally, he is caring. Jesus Christ cares for his people. Ruth took that risky step of going to Boaz and she was richly rewarded for it. And we too, the Bible says, will be richly rewarded for taking the step of trusting in Jesus. See, we're back to where we began this morning. To experience the joy of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ and the care of Christ, we need to ask for it. We need to go to Jesus. So we can know just how much we need Jesus in our lives. We can know just how gracious and generous Jesus is to those who come to him. But if we don't go to him ourselves, then we are never going to benefit from that knowledge. See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, then that means you need to go to Christ for the first time. Learn from Ruth. Don't miss this opportunity to get to know Jesus and the new life he has for you. And it's a step that requires courage, but is richly rewarded with forgiveness, with new life, with God's Holy Spirit in us, enabling us to live for Jesus. But if you're already a Christian here this morning, the lesson from Ruth 3 is actually much the same. Keep on going to Jesus every single day of your life and depend on him for all that you need. So you don't just acknowledge Jesus' goodness. Don't just nod your head to the great resources that God gives to Christians. You need to actively depend on those resources. You need to lean on Jesus if you're going to be able to live for him. See, we began this morning with the challenge that Jesus gives us to ask him for all that we need and he will give it 
to us. That's because he has already given us everything we need to live for him. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that we might know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of God. See, the power available to Christians is not some sort of magical power to give us absolutely everything we want. Instead, it is power that comes from knowing Jesus and his power at work in us. See, the prayers of the New Testament were not prayers for comfort or for ease or for material things. They were prayers that we might know God and that the knowledge of God might transform us and give us joy even when not everything goes the way we want it to, even when we suffer for following Jesus. See, the prayer we can ask with the utter confidence that God will answer is that we might know his joy over his people, his faithfulness to his people, his care for his people. And if we have that knowledge of Jesus, then we will be willing to suffer and to struggle for him. The early Christians died for their faith in Christ. Christians all around the world are dying today for their faith in Jesus. And they are only able to do that because they know Jesus' love and faithfulness. They have a knowledge of him. They have prayed for that. And that is the knowledge we need to pray for ourselves as individuals and as a church. See, the lesson of Ruth 3 is that we know that Christ is gracious. We know that he is good. We know that he is loving. But we also need to transform that knowledge into asking him to transform us, to open our eyes that we might see him and be transformed by seeing him. See, the Bible says Christ will receive us with joy. He will gladly give to everyone the strength they need to live for him. If we will just ask him. See, we serve a gracious and generous God. And it's our responsibility to depend on him and to go on depending on him every day for the rest of our lives until that prayer for knowledge of him is finally fulfilled when we actually see him face to face in the new creation. Will we trust in him until then? And will we ask that we might know him today?